testimony is what I've been asked to give to you this morning. And my testimony is interesting. It includes clowns and a lot of doubt. And then the sweet realization that Jesus truly does love to save sinners. Um, I was blessed to be born into a Christian home, in fact, into a pastor's home. I am a preacher's kid, and uh, we moved all over the southeast uh, as we, my dad would typically stay at a church five, six years and then move on. Uh, But it meant that the gospel was a part of my life from as long as I can remember. Uh, I can't remember a time when I did not know the message of Christ crucified. Um. I was six years old when we went to the North Carolina State Fair in Raleigh, and there was a church there that had set up an evangelistic tent where clowns put on a puppet show. And at that puppet show, they tried to give a representation of the gospel to kids, followed by a kids, do you want to go to hell? No, pray this prayer. And, uh, and, and that's what I did. Uh, If you ask my parents today, they say, Justin, we talked to you. You really understood what you were doing. And uh, I was baptized soon after, uh, very young. The the issue with that for me is that I actually remember very little about it. And so as I hit especially my tween years and then up into my teen years, I struggled a great deal with the assurance of my salvation. How could I know whether or not I was truly saved? And I had been taught over and over again that the way that a person was saved is that you pray this sinner's prayer, right? And somebody would say, repeat after me. And then they would say, Lord, I know you're, you're holy. I know I'm a sinner. I know Jesus died on the cross. I confess my sins. Would you please save me? And, and so I cannot tell you how many times I prayed that sinner's prayer. And I can remember probably around age 13, um, lying in my bed at night in tears, praying that prayer and then waiting to feel different and not feeling anything. And saying, I guess I just don't really mean it enough. Or I guess I'm doing it wrong somehow. And then I would try it again. I remember we had a revival preacher come to our church. And uh, after preaching his message, he would get to the end. He would say, do you know that you know that you know that you know that when you stand before God on the last day, that he will say, welcome into my eternal kingdom. And I just didn't know. I wasn't sure. And I remember going up afterwards and they had these counselors there and the counselor took me into a back room and and I tried to explain. I said, I want to be saved. I just don't know that I am. And he said, well, have you heard of this prayer called the sinner's prayer? And I wanted to hit him um, because I was so frustrated. So it was when we had moved from Panama City, Florida to Dalton, Georgia, north of Atlanta, carpet capital of the world. Uh, I was... 16 going on 17, and a friend of mine from Florida sent me a letter. And he was telling me all about this new youth minister who had come to their church who was preaching some really unusual things about how God loves God more than anything and about how God had this eternal plan from the foundations of the earth to what we just heard, give to his son a bride as a love gift. And I hated every word of what my friend was saying And I remember going to my Quest study Bible and like typing out this long, like, you know, he gave it back to me years later. It's kind of funny to see now. But this this thing about, you know, how God loves people more than anything and all of this. And and but after I'd been exposed to what I now know is called the doctrines of grace, uh, after I'd been exposed to that, I started seeing it everywhere. 
my dad, who was not a, a, a Calvinist at the time, uh, he is a faithful preacher of what he sees in the Bible. And so every Sunday we were working through texts, and though he wasn't pointing it out, I was seeing it everywhere. Um, it was happening. One of my best friends in high school, he was just good at everything. He was good at basketball and good at drama and good at class. And I just, I envied him, right? He, he seemed to have it all. And after I got to knowing him a little bit, turned out his dad was a Reformed Baptist minister, and they, they held to these truths. And and so it was like God was just just surrounding me with it. And I continued to fight and continued to fight until one day I got to go spend time as we were on a trip down in Florida with that youth minister. And I remember sitting in his living room and he said, just take your Bible out and let's just put it open in our laps. Ask me every question you want and let's just work our way text by text. And by the time I left his house that night, I was convinced that God has a bigger plan than just me which you might not think would be comforting, but that was so comforting to me. Suddenly it meant that the world didn't revolve around me. And it also meant this, that when God has decided to save somebody, he saves them. And it's up to him and not up to them. And I realized, and this was the breakthrough for me that made the biggest difference in my life. When Jesus says, everyone who calls on me will be saved, he's not playing games. He's not trying to trick them. He's not saying, I want you to pray that prayer a thousand times and I'm not going to let you know whether it's right or not. Rather, he really does love sinners and he really does open the door to salvation. And so a few months ago, I remember talking to my son about this and he was expressing something that sounded very similar to me. He said, Ed, I I think I believe. I want to believe. I'm not sure if I believe. I said, son, you just believe with whatever you've got because it doesn't matter the amount of faith. If you have saving faith, God has put it there. You just trust his promise that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Don't look at yourself. Look at Christ. That's where the promise is. And that proved to be what made the biggest difference in my life is what brought peace to me. I don't know whether I was saved when I was six years old or not. I have no idea. I just know at some point in my life, I came to a point where I trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that I'm trusting in him at this moment with whatever degree of faith I, can, I have, but I know it's, it's from him. So if you're here and you have any sort of those kinds of struggles, right? If you're struggling with assurance of your salvation, don't focus on you and your own feelings and your own doubts. Put your focus on the Lord Jesus. He will keep his promise. And when he says, just come to me, however you are, with that, whatever amount of faith you got, even if it's just a mustard seed, when he says, come, he really means it. And he will keep his promise and he will save. Appreciate y'all letting me be here this morning. Looking forward to the Gospel of Luke in a few minutes. Justin, thank you, brother. Good morning. So let's pause now and let's pray together. And we'll even begin with a moment of silence. Lord, we praise you, the God of all grace. We love you, Lord. We say that this morning. We thank you that you have first loved us. Your word goes on to say there in 1 Corinthians 2 that yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Lord, we pray according to what we read a few minutes ago, that as our brother Justin comes, that his teaching and that his preaching might not be in plausible words of wisdom, as Paul says here, but instead in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that even our fate this morning might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God, 
Lord, would you open your word to us, help us, search us. When we pray that prayer from Psalm 139, when we pray, search me, O God, and know my heart, Lord, you search us through your word as we engage with and as we encounter your word. Lord, we do pray for our brothers and sisters in Rocky Mount this morning at Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church. We pray for your blessing upon Pastor Merle as he preaches, that you would give them great joy as they gather there. Sustain them in unity and purity for years to come. Lord, we pray for the Velez family. We pray for the Spots family. We thank you for them. And we pray, Lord, that you would protect the other members of the family and that you would give Aaron a quick healing. We thank you for Zach coming out of this. Lord, we pray for those in Louisiana this morning who are very much anticipating this storm. Lord, we pray that you would stay this terrible storm. Lord, we pray for all of our personnel at Seymour Johnson, and we thank you for them, Lord, as we remember all of our military, as we were confronted with the sobering news just in these last few days. We pray for the family members of these 13. We pray, Father, for pastors, for missionaries in Afghanistan, for, again, for the military. We pray for our leaders, for those who you have put in power to make decisions. We pray for our president, our vice president. Lord, we pray for the Afghan people. Lord, we pray that you would glorify your name through Jesus Christ. Lord, we see from your word that it is only through conscious faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved. And apart from conscious faith in Jesus, we have no hope. So we pray that you would glorify your name through Christ there in the entire world. Help us now, Lord. Speak to us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I am excited for you because it sounds like you guys have Romans 8 ahead. Did I understand that correctly? The grade 8. Oh, you've already started. Oh, one of my favorite seasons of preaching in my entire life. I envy envy you, John. It's such a great great place to be in the Bible, and I certainly pray the Lord will, will bless you all as you study the great eight together. It's too good to be true. Have you ever heard anybody say that before? Um, maybe you've said it. Have, have you ever been made an offer that seemed too good to be true? You're skeptical. Waiting for the catch, wondering how, how can that offer really be, be true? Uh, way back in the 1960s, uh, Marshall McLuhan, he's the same guy who famously said, the medium is the message. Uh, he also said this, he said, the church's problem is that the gospel is good news in a world which only believes bad news is news. In our day, people are quick to believe bad news. Bad news doesn't surprise us anymore. But the gospel, message of of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ, it's a different kind of news. It involves believing in miracles like the virgin birth, the resurrection, 
But for some, even believing in the miracles is less difficult than believing that there could really be hope for someone like them. When somebody hears that God would give his son to die for them and that all of their guilt and shame can be taken away, that their sins can be removed from their account, people say that's impossible. There must be a catch. Too good to be true. Albert Camus, he was a famous French atheist novelist. As his hero in one of his books say this, he says, salvation is much too big a word for me. I don't aim so high. For the atheist, the the blessings offered in the gospel are more wonderful than could possibly be true in a world like ours. And it is a tragedy that some will spend eternity in hell because they would not take God at his word and believe the gospel of extraordinary good news. This morning, we're going to spend a few minutes with a man named Zechariah. He's not an atheist. He's a faithful, believing priest of God. And he's going to receive some news that seems too good to be true. Look with me at chapter one, beginning in verse five. Verse 5, this is the very word of God. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So scholars disagree. Uh, My own take, it could be wrong, is that we're in the year 6 BC. This is a special week for Zechariah. Uh, He and his wife, Elizabeth, both advanced in years, have come from their hometown in the hills of Judea to the city of Jerusalem. And that's because this is the one week of the year 
when Zechariah's priestly order serves at the temple in Jerusalem. So it was a one week a year thing where your order as a priest was caught up to do duty at the temple. Now, even though he had come to Jerusalem many times in his life, one could not be helped or helped to be impressed by the visual splendor of the city. Uh, Frankly, the city was much larger and much grander under Herod the Great than it had ever been under David or Solomon. There were palaces and there were citadels. There was a theater and an amphitheater. Herod had built new bridges. He had introduced new and improved engineering techniques. He had erected public monuments all throughout the city. And of course, from practically anywhere in Jerusalem, you could look towards the Temple Mount and see the massive, gleaming, gold-covered temple that stood over not just the broader temple complex, but it stood over the Temple Mount. It stood over the entire city. Jerusalem was very busy. Uh, The wall around the city was about four miles in circumference. And within these walls were thousands of people, at least 80,000. Some ancient historians use figures as high as 600,000 living within that four-mile radius. It seems likely that Jerusalem at this time typically had around 100,000 people dwelling in it permanently. But at the times of the festivals and the great celebrations, the population could sometimes hit more than a million people. For an ancient city, that was massive. There were several different gates in the wall of the city, and as people came in and out, they had to pass through custom stations. They had to pay taxes on the goods that were brought either into the city or out of the city. Construction was happening everywhere, and Roman soldiers walked the streets The Antonia Fortress was this huge military barracks right beside the Temple Mount. Its tower always had soldiers stationed on it, watching over the activities of the temple complex. And there's something else Zechariah would have noticed each time he came to Jerusalem. It was smelly. Uh, Jerusalem had a wonderful drainage system. An excess waste was picked up and carted out through the appropriately called Dung Gate. But at the center of Jerusalem's economy was the temple sacrifices. And every day, Jews from all over the region and beyond were coming into this city with their animals. Several thousand animals were sacrificed at the temple on a slow day. On a holy day, the sacrifices could reach into the hundreds of thousands. And we have passages in the Talmud that talk about priests wading knee deep through the blood of animals. And so animals were everywhere in Jerusalem and animal droppings and everything else that comes with with animals. And so there's a reason that uh, there were several city pools throughout the city where people could wash themselves. And myrrh and perfumes were considered valuable because they were used to help cover sort of the natural stink of the city. 
So here's Zechariah. He's come to Jerusalem. He's been here many times over the decades. And this is his priestly orders week to serve in the temple. This is not just a special week. This is a special day. And it's a very special day. In fact, in many ways, this is the most important day in Zechariah's life. Why? Because when priests came to Jerusalem, they served in the temple courts. They served in other parts of the temple complex. But to actually go inside the temple, to actually go into the holy place, that that room with the showbread and the holy table and the the holy lampstand, that was a rare privilege. Lots were cast to see which of the many priests serving that day would minister in the holy place. And on this day, the lot had been cast and it fell to Zechariah. It's important to understand this was a once in a lifetime opportunity. Once a priest had served in the holy place one time, he would never have the opportunity to serve there again. So this was the only time that Zechariah would ever go into this sacred room. We can imagine him slowly walking up the stairs, one after the other, from the the temple court towards the door. And you can only imagine what must have been going through his mind, what he must have been feeling, his heart racing, a sense of nervousness. He walks in, and the door closes behind him, and he is alone in the holy place. And he looks up. The ceiling is about 10 stories above his head. Uh, That's just the ceiling of the first floor. There's an upper chamber that sits above that one. He looks at the, the walls and the walls stretch up 10 stories towards the ceiling. And they are completely plated with gold. So there's just gold rising higher and higher all around him. Except for one wall. Because one wall is not a wall at all. It is a massive curtain. Larger, taller than any curtain you have ever seen. Zechariah knows what's on the other side of that curtain. Remember, the actual temple itself is two main rooms. There's the holy place and the most holy place. And only the high priest could go into the most holy place and he could only go once a year. The Ark of the Covenant that had the tablets of the law and the staff of Aaron and the container of manna, it used to would have dwelt there, but it was lost long before this time when the Babylonians destroyed the first temple. So now if you had walked into the most holy place, there was only a raised spot in the floor to show where the Ark of the Covenant should go. And the high priest would go into that room on the Day of Atonement. He would take blood from the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it on that raised spot in the floor. Now, God's intense, special presence dwelt in the most holy place, just beyond the curtain that Zechariah sees. And frankly, I don't think he dared to get close to it. 
But he must have thought about how amazing it was to be that close to God's special, powerful presence. The place where the Jews said that heaven met earth. One legend from Jewish history is that a rope would be tied around the high priest when he went in. So that if he had a medical emergency, no one would go in after him. They would pull him out with the rope. Zechariah turns his attention back to the room he's in, the holy place. And for such a large room, it was sparsely furnished. Um, There was a table on which the bread of the presence sat. There was the the lampstand, a menorah that gave light to the room. It caused the gold walls to shine. And the only other piece of furniture in the whole room was the altar of incense. Now, the altar is is taller than the other furniture. It sits about three feet high. It's covered in gold. It sits right in front of that massive curtain. And that altar is the reason that Zechariah is here. You see, each day, priests were to offer a morning and an evening offering of incense on that altar. It appears Zechariah had been given the privilege of the evening offering, which was really about 3.30 in the afternoon. And so you've got people outside the temple and they are praying in the courtyards and their prayers are coinciding with the, the offering of this incense there at the altar. Zechariah is not there empty handed. He has with him and in some sort of a, a pan a burning coal taken from the altar outside. He also has with him this incense. It's it's a mixture of three spices and some salt blended together, mixed with frankincense, beaten into a powder. No one in Israel was allowed to use this incense in their homes. This incense recipe was for the temple alone. So Zechariah places the coals upon the altar He then pours his powder upon it. And the result is this this intensely sweet and pleasant aroma that springs up from the altar. That's not all that Zechariah is here to do. Because he's here as a priest representing the people of God. And he has been sent into this room to pray. In fact, the whole reason that God commanded the burning of the incense and the pleasing aroma was to teach his people it is pleasing to him when they pray. Zechariah has been sent into this room to intercede on behalf of Israel, to seek God's blessing on Israel. And he has prayed like this many times before, but never here. Never in this place, never quite like this. And so there are crowds of people praying outside. He's praying inside. And we can kind of imagine him just pouring out his heart to God. God, have mercy on your people. Forgive us for our idolatry and our immorality and our sins. Help us to be faithful to that covenant that we made with you at Mount Sinai. Oh God, keep those promises that you made to your father Abraham. Deliver us from this Roman bondage. Send your promised Messiah. 
Make us a holy people. Make us a blessed people. Make us a prosperous people. And then suddenly, as Zechariah is is praying, an angel appears. And Luke tells us that this angel appeared at the right side of the altar of incense, which means right in front of that massive 10-story tall holy curtain. He gives no description of the angel's appearance. Uh, We know that angels are created beings like us. Humans do not become angels when they die. We're two very different creatures. They are not physical beings. Yet God has given angels the ability to appear in various forms. And throughout the Bible, angels often appear in the form of, of men. Sometimes they appear as men and it's not obvious they're angels, right? We're told in Hebrews, people have entertained angels unawares. Other times angels appear and they appear in a human form, but it's, it's obvious that they are angels. Maybe they're, they're radiant. I, I don't know. There's a glory about them. But my guess is something like that is the case here. Zechariah sees this angel in the form of a man and he doesn't assume that someone has snuck into the temple. He knows this is an angel. And immediately we're told Zechariah is trembling. He is, he's filled with fear. Oh, this is what happens in the holy place. I never knew. The angel speaks to him. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. The angel knows his name. The angel speaks his name. And then for five verses in our Bible, the angel just keeps talking. He he tells Zechariah that his prayer has been answered, that his wife is going to give birth to a, a son. What prayer is being answered? We, we know that Zechariah and Elizabeth had been unable to have children. And surely they had prayed many, many prayers over the years for a child. But now that their childbearing years have passed, one might understand if they had stopped praying that prayer. Here was Zechariah in the temple fulfilling his priestly duty. He was praying for God to bless Israel. And yet... Both prayers are being answered. After so many years, God is now answering that long desire of Zechariah and Elizabeth for a child. And this child is going to be a blessing from God to the nation. Zechariah and Elizabeth had waited decades for a child. Their waiting is now over. Israel had been waiting 400 years for a new prophet from God. That wait is now over too. The angel goes on to tell Zechariah about this son that God is giving them. Uh, We learn here the mission of John the Baptist. But I want you to look at how Zechariah responded to the angel. So look at verse 18. Verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. 
And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife, Elizabeth, conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So how does Zechariah respond to this great promise, this this angelic announcement of a miracle son? Zechariah responds with unbelief. How shall I know this? Even though he is speaking with an angel in the holy place of the temple, reason and logic are working against him. I I am an old man. My wife is advanced in years. We can't have a son. We're too old. Isn't that amazing? This man knows his Old Testament. This, This man knows Abraham and Sarah and the miracle child that came to them. He knows about Isaac and Rebekah. He knows the story of Hannah the mother of Samuel, and he's talking to an angel. What more evidence does he need that these things are going to come true? And we have the discipline of God. The angel declares that he is not just any angel. Oh, there are myriads and myriads of angels. There are thousands and thousands of angels. This angel is Gabriel. This angel is the same angel that spoke with Daniel and helped Daniel understand his visions. Remember, angels don't die. The angels that exist today have existed since they were created back in Genesis 1. And here is one of the elite angels, one of the few angels whose names we we know, an angel who has already in the past been given jobs of supreme importance in the plans of God. I am Gabriel, he says. I stand in the presence of God. Zechariah, do you think what's behind that curtain is impressive? The special presence of God in that sacred room is only a tiny picture of the true holy of holies, the most holy place, heaven itself. That's where I live. That's where I stand before God, Zechariah, not in the type, in the antitype, not in the shadow. I stand in the ultimate reality. And I was sent to you to speak to you and to bring this good news. And he pronounces this judgment, right? Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the days that these things take place. You can imagine what it was like for the people when the door opened late. Here comes Zechariah and he can't speak and he's trying to communicate through signs. He he couldn't speak to Elizabeth to tell her what had happened. He He has to write. And in this condition, when his order's week of service was over, he goes back home. Two lessons, two lessons for us. Number one, the lesson of prayer. This passage calls us to be a people of devoted, earnest, persistent prayer. Why? Because it teaches us that God really does hear and he really does answer. He does so in his own time. 
And sometimes his answer comes much later than we ever expected. But we see here that the desire of Zechariah and Elizabeth for so many years, it is being answered and is being answered in a way beyond what they had ever considered or imagined. And it's not just their prayers. The faithful remnant in Israel had been praying for centuries for the prophet who was to come. The one who would come in the spirit of Elijah. The one promised by Malachi who would make straight the ways of the Lord. After all these years, God is finally sending a new prophet to Israel. Friends, is there something that you long for God to do? Is there some holy, deep desire in your soul? Are you praying? Maybe you've prayed for years and years and you've become discouraged and you've left off praying. Do you not see what's being taught here? Don't put a timetable on the Lord. His purposes are grander than what we can know. Keep praying. It is his joy to answer the prayers of his children in his own time and in his own way. God is not sitting in heaven with divine arms crossed, grumpily saying no to your requests. Your father loves you. And he never says no unless fatherly love requires it. He loves to give gifts to his children. Our Lord Jesus would later say, which one of you, if his son asks him for a bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Friends, do not doubt the generous heart of God. Run to him with your request. Keep praying. Don't lose heart. Not One prayer will prove to be wasted. Not one. Alexander McLaren said, the prayer that begins with trustfulness and passes on into waiting, even while in sorrow and sore need, will always end in thankfulness and triumph and praise. Charles Spurgeon When preaching on the parable of the persistent widow, shared his own testimony about coming to Christ. And it turns out that Spurgeon called out to Jesus many times before he truly believed himself to be saved. He says, when with deep anxiety of spirit, I sought the Savior, I prayed many months before I could get an answer. And I heard my mother say one day that there never was a man in the world she believed so wicked as to say that he had sought God truly and earnestly in prayer and God had not answered him. Many black oaths, she said, have been sworn, but I have never heard of any man who was allowed to utter a sentence so derogatory to the love and the mercy of God as, well, I have sought God and he would not save me. Spurgeon says, at once the thought struck me, well, I will say that, for I know I have sought God and I feel he has not heard me. And I resolved that I would say it. And I resolved that she would hear me say it. For I felt my spirit within me. I had sought God and I thought I had sought him with all my heart. And he had never vouchsafed to hear me. I talked with a dear lady two weeks ago, just like this. 
I keep calling on him. I don't think he's real because he's not answering. I keep asking him to save me. I hadn't seen anything happen yet. Spurgeon says, then it occurred to me. Would it not be better to try again before saying that to my mother? This time I sought the Lord as I had never sought him before. And at that time I found and I rejoiced in the hope of the glory of God because my supplication had been answered in my own heart to my own soul's comfort. So maybe there's someone in here like that, right? You've, you've prayed before to be saved, but you don't feel like God heard your prayer or answered your prayer. Don't stop praying. Don't stop calling on the Lord Jesus to save you. Trust his promise. He will answer. Your prayers will not be proven to be in vain. A little more Spurgeon, can I? If you are in the same position and are laboring under the same temptation, try again. If your knees have been bent 70 times in vain, remember you have 70 times fewer to pray. Keep trying. You are so much nearer the appointed number which you must reach before God will hear you. Do not give up your efforts. In fact, I know you neither will nor can give up if God the Holy Spirit has taught you praying. For that is one of the things that Satan cannot do. He cannot effectually stop a praying tongue. He cannot forever quench the desire of your soul, though he may do it for a time. By despondency and despair, he cannot do it in the end. I want before I have done to take the hand of that young man or that young woman who is tonight seeking the Savior as yet without having found him to his heart's joy. And I want to say a kind word to him. Dear brother, dear sister, God will hear you. Be of good courage. We're so half-hearted people. We're so quick to give up. Frankly, we're so used to getting everything we want when we want it how we want it. Pray. Keep praying. Lastly, the second lesson from this passage, it is the lesson of faith. You see, even a godly faithful man like Zechariah fell into unbelief when he was surprised by such good news. What's interesting here is he wasn't doubting that this was a word from God. He wasn't doubting that this was God's appointed messenger. He was doubting the message itself. It truly seemed too good to be true. I think he had probably reconciled himself to the fact that he would not be a father sometime before. And after so many years of disappointment, so many years of his prayers not being answered, I think he had likely created a wall in his heart to the very idea of a child so that his hopes wouldn't be dashed again. And so now, not only his, his heart responds, but his basic reasoning is kicking in. Well, we're too old. We can't have children. But his logic left out an important piece of data. There is a God in heaven, and he does as he pleases. Nothing is impossible with God. Zechariah asked for more evidence. How shall I know this? In this moment of unbelief, this, this word from God was not enough for him. He thought he needed something more than the word of God. Friends, when God has given us his word on a matter, that ought to be enough for us. Who is more reliable than God? We just sing, great is thy faithfulness. 
Can anyone hold back his arm? Can anyone keep him from accomplishing what he has promised? Is there anyone stronger than God? Can anyone cause him to change his mind or to reconsider the situation or to take back his word? No, our God is faithful through and through, fulfilling all his perfect will. I don't like most cheesy Christian bumper stickers, but you know the one that says, God settles it, I believe it, that settles it. It's pretty good. It'd be better if it just said, God says it, that settles it. (laughs) doesn't matter whether I believe it or not. If God said it, that settles it. I wonder, is there any glorious truth that God has given to you through his word that you are doubting? Is there some wonderful reality promised to you in the Bible? And church, the great eight of Romans is full of them. Full of them. You're going to hear promises of God just scattered all over you. As John preaches to you from Romans 8. So are you going to hear those promises? Are you going to be doubting? Are you going to be saying, I, I just don't know about that. How, how, how shall I know that this is true? Maybe there are promises in the Bible that raise your objections, but that's impossible. That doesn't fit with how things normally work. God has brought us some good news. Here's some of it. The moment you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Do you believe it? The very Holy Spirit that dwelt behind that curtain in the most holy place now dwells in your heart if you believe on Christ. Do you believe it? All things are being worked for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things from the flight of each and every bumblebee to the orbit of the planets in a galaxy a trillion miles away. It's all being worked by God for your good. Dear saints, do you believe it? When you breathe your last breath and you come to your dying day, you will open your eyes and find yourself in the very presence of Christ himself. And you will see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you believe it? Maybe the hardest one for me, we have a cemetery right outside our church, is that one day all those bodies are going to get up and be reformed. And Jesus is going to come back and souls are going to be reunited to bodies. And, and then souls and bodies are going to be glorified and made ready for an eternity, whether in heaven or in hell. That's like Pirates of the Caribbean stuff, right? Do you believe it? Justin, that's crazy. People's bodies will have turned to dust. The atoms that make up their bodies will have have gone on to other things. It just doesn't make scientific sense. Friends, before the power of God, every objection must fall. When God has declared something, it is certain Thank God it doesn't depend on whether or not I understand it. It doesn't depend on whether or not I can comprehend it. We are called to believe what our creator God has spoken. And for those who have believed on Jesus, what he has spoken is wonderful, glorious, good news. But because our God does the impossible, it is not too good to be true. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, 
Thank you for this dear saint, Zechariah, and what you did in his life and how it serves us 2,000 years later. Thank you for Dr. Luke and his record, for bringing it into our hands that we might see these truths. Father, give us faith to believe them. Father, make us a praying people. Help us to take courage and to take heart. Remind us of your generous heart. Remind us of the delight you take in giving gifts to your children. Strengthen that in us, Father. We need it. Father, strengthen our faith. Help us to believe every part of your word. Help us to take hold of every promise. May it be the fuel in our spiritual engines that we may bear fruit for you. Father, if there's a person in this room that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, Father, I ask you would draw them to yourself this very moment. I plead with you, Father, show them their sins. Show them the glory of Christ. May they run to him. Father, bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.